Well, tonight's talk is entitled Embracing the Shadow. But I think I renamed it tonight Embracing Shade. But then I came up with even another name, which is Do We Really Have to Spend 40 Days and 40 Nights <laughs> in Order to Wake Up? And there's not going to be an answer to that one. <laughs> the Dalai Lama has a, a little pamphlet that now is being sent out with all the books from Wisdom Publications. And right at the beginning, he says, what we all want is to be happy. It's right at the start. We all want to be happy. And it goes on to describe and explore what it really means to be happy. And how where we get stuck is most of us have our happiness very much hitched onto circumstances that don't provide because they change. You know, we, we need to be happy. Uh, we will be happy if these bodies look a certain way or stay healthy or certain people treat us certain ways and so on. So we're stuck in this situation that we want life to be a certain way in order to feel good about it. And it just does not necessarily accommodate us in that way. So what we find, and this is kind of this general overview, is that we have a feeling a lot of the times that something's wrong. It's not just that it's painful or uncomfortable, but there's something wrong with how it all is. And then what happens is we go around kind of resisting life trying to change it. Stephen Levine writes that wanting is for the next moment to contain what this moment does not. When we're in that place of wanting, when this moment is not okay, there's this feeling of incompleteness. There's a sense that we're not whole. And it's impossible to be really present. You know, we, we all know about that. We've we spend so much of our time wanting something else, something different. A primary place that we end up playing this out is in our wanting around ourself, around our self-concept. That's the main arena that I run into anyway, that we have these ideals about how we should be. I mean, think about it sense into yourself. You have these kind of uh, notions about to be a good person or an okay person. What criterion has to be met? So most of us do have some ideals on how we're supposed to be to be an okay person. And for most of us, we're chronically falling short. There's a sense of deficiency of not okayness. So what happens is that we move through life kind of organizing ourselves around the not okayness. How to feel more okay. You know, all the self-improvement projects that we do. How to feel more okay. We hide things from ourselves, from others. We try to compensate in a million ways or we ignore it or we just get depressed, we push it all under. What I'd like to invite you to do 
is to just reflect for a moment on what your maybe main story of what's not okay within yourself is, what you're aware of that's kind of unacceptable or unforgivable. Because we'll close tonight with doing a bit of a meditation around that. Clarissa Estes calls it the not beautiful, what we run from in ourselves. For some of us, it's the ways that we hurt other people. That's just unacceptable. For others, it's the way we see ourselves continually hurting ourselves, perhaps with addictive behaviors or whatever. For some, it's just the way we look. It's just unacceptable, unforgivable, the way our bodies are. For many, it's our neediness, the sense that we are needy. So reflecting on that, what seems unforgivable, unacceptable? What's it like to feel that feeling of something's inside that is not all right? So as I mentioned, we've got all these strategies that we use to try to feel a little better, because it's real painful to have parts of ourselves that we don't like. A lot, of our, a lot of the strategies are compensatory. We're trying to make up for something. We're in the red and trying to compensate. A painful way that we try to do this is by presenting something different to other people. Most of us know about that. We have a persona that's been designed to, in some way, cover up what's not okay and get other people to like us which isn't terrible except unto itself, except for what happens is we never get to trust that they really like us because we know they like us on the basis, or we think they like us on the basis of this presentation we've made. Then we don't ever get to feel really intimate because they don't know us for who we are because we've been too scared to show who we really are. So we go to all these lengths to, to create this good personhood you know, we become helpful people, smart people. We, just, we all have our personas. This has to do with personas, and it's from deep thoughts. I sometimes read from deep thoughts. Some of you know about this. Here's a good thing to do if you go to a party and you don't know anybody. First, take out the garbage. Then go around and collect any extra garbage that people might have, like a crumpled up napkin, and take that out too. Pretty soon people will all want to meet the busy garbage man. <laughs> so we do weird things to get people to like us, right? Sometimes not quite that weird. The sad thing is that a lot of our life energy is organized around not having to experience our exposed, the not okay within ourselves. That's the sad part. I mean, can you imagine that if we weren't so consumed with this project, all the energy that would be freed up, that creative, loving energy? So that's for later in the talk, but can you imagine? because a lot of our juice is wrapped up in this project of trying to feel okay. There's 
the name that usually is given to the not okay is the shadow. And that's why I started by naming this embracing the shadow. That what we don't like is the shadow. What we push away is the shadow. Pushing away part of ourself has a long history. It's, I don't know how far back it goes, but it seems to be part of the civilizing of humans. I mean, think of the Old Testament, the story of Lucifer. Some of you know that one, that God was up in heaven and he had his right-hand man, Michael, and he and Michael heard some rumors that a lesser angel, but still an angel named Lucifer, was kind of an upstart and trying to get some more energy, some more respect, some more attention in his direction and away from God. And God didn't like that, so he ordered Michael to get rid of Lucifer and, and Lucifer's cronies. So they, they kind of pushed Lucifer out of heaven, and there was a big um, renting gap in, in the fabric of heaven when it happened. And as Lucifer and his cronies were pushed away from heaven, they developed these long claws and started shrieking and howling in a hideous way. They turned into demons, into devils, when they were pushed out of heaven. It says something about the effects of pushing away a part of ourselves, doesn't it? Then they started really causing trouble, but that's a whole other story. The pushing away of the shadow side is in every major religious tradition. Look closely. Or let's, I can say every patriarchal religious tradition, which is the ones that I know most about. This wariness and fear and, and mistrust of the mystery of earth, of sexuality, of emotionality, it all becomes the shadow. And there's all these rules and regs on how to beware of the feminine side, so to speak. So it's in our culture. It's in our cultural psyche. And we also learn about pushing away the shadow on a very personal level. Each of us has our own personal life history of messages we were given from our parents. Some very well-intentioned. They wanted to make sure that we came out OK and didn't suffer. But of course, the underlying assumption was something might be wrong with us. So they gave us messages on how to try to be someone special, achieve things, not do things wrong, be extraordinary in some way. They gave us messages about our imperfections. We were constantly reminded of them in some way. And so what happened is we grew up to not like parts of ourselves. Beyond just the messages we received in our own families, what we find, and this happens particularly when we start meditating in a more quiet and attentive way, is that almost any thought or sense of a separate self can bring up a subtle kind of experience of shame, that something's wrong, that somehow even having a feeling of being a separate self has a sense of deficiency, incompleteness, which it is. A separate self means we're not connected, we're not complete. At IMS, there's, at one retreat, there was a sign that somebody put up and it said, self-knowledge 
how did it self knowledge is not good news <laughs> you know the more we explore this self the more we discover all the sense of deficiency that's organized around it Lily Tomlin says I always knew I wanted to be somebody but I guess I should have been more specific <laughs> So here at retreat, I mean, retreats are a great arena to start discovering the presence of and the resistance to our shadow side. Because we don't have our normal escape valves, we don't have our normal preoccupations, we're face to face with grasping, with wanting things to be a certain way, and we're face to face with aversion, not liking. Now, sometimes the grasping and aversion seems to be fixed on outside things. I mean, this retreat, case in fact, I mean, we, we all have this external enemy that we can put all our stuff on, right? Isn't that so? I mean, it's interesting how retreats go. Sometimes there are externals, and it's kind of like you get to make an enemy outside yourself, and you see countries do that. But, you know, even when, if that isn't the case, in some retreats it's not, then what happens? We, all of it's kind of turned inward. And we find all sorts of things to obsess about, about what we don't like about ourselves, how we're not doing it right, the stories of our life intrude into our consciousness, and we sense our deficiencies there. The shadow comes up whether we pin it externally or internally. And as some of you noticed, and this came up in a couple of the groups today, even when the aversion is to something outside, there's a complaint about something outside ourselves, we don't like ourselves for having the complaint. Do you know what I mean? And even when it seems valid, we still have this kind of inner feeling of, eh, you know, what's wrong with me that I can't just be okay with this? So what I'd like to explore a little in, in talking tonight is how we can relate in a wise way to that which we are conditioned to push away. You know, it's conditioning. It's not like there's something weird about how we're wired. All of us are that way. When there's something unpleasant, we push it away. So how can we relate to this? And I'd like to add, it's not only unpleasant that we push away, we push away pleasant too. The Buddha's basic teaching in terms of practice, in terms of moving through our life, had to do with how to pay attention to this whole realm of conditioning that I've been talking about. His basic guideline or instruction is just to see clearly what's true. Pay attention, be mindful. What is this? If we're not caught in the story, we can begin to discover the truth of our experience. But most of us keep running the story. So how to get under the story? I'll give you an example from my own life that really had an effect on me. And this was um, last February. Some of you I think I've shared this with. I went on a trip with my son out to the southwest. And my son, Narayan, is nine years old, and he has a passion 
an incredible passion around all things that are Native American. I mean, he loves Native American artifacts, whether it's oh, sand paintings and pottery or medicine shields or dream catchers. He just loves it if it has that flavor. His favorite stuff is skulls. He has an amazing skull collection. So we went outside of Santa Fe to this flea market that not only had a huge, huge selection of everything, <coughs> but what a bargain, you know? Now, Narayan's not only a collector, but he's really into, you know, making a deal. So he was all over the place, make, you know, setting up these arrangements with these different uh, Native American people that were selling their wares. And he dragged me from one booth to the next saying, Mom, look how I can save on this. And, you know, and he knew he had a limit to how much he could spend. So at one point, at one particular booth that was really wonderful, I mean, they had great stuff. I was kind of standing on the sidelines next to this old woman that was maybe the wife of the guy that was selling stuff. And we were both watching as Narayan was doing his yet another negotiation. And I was sitting there with this sinking feeling of, oh my God, I'm bringing up this kid and he is so material and grasping and greedy and, you know, and she was standing there kind of like this, just kind of nodding her head. And finally she looked at me and she said, he really loves this stuff, doesn't he? And it just dropped away. All of a sudden, yes, there was grasping, but boy, this is just his passion, his love for beauty, for stuff, which is okay. We get very caught in judging grasping, judging aversion, and very disconnected from the life force that's so natural that runs under it. And then we push away each other and parts of ourselves for it. There's something quite beautiful about being able to open to that in him and see his grasping underneath that, his love for things, and it just kind of made me more relaxed about me and everybody else, like we're all like that. Last night, Anna referred to a book which I also love. It's called The Universe is a Green Dragon. And if you can get hold of that one, it's a gem. It's got a real interesting angle on truth. And one chapter describes how this life force that prevails and permeates everything, this eros, is what makes life exist. In other words, the galaxies, the stars, nothing would hold together unless there was this attracting force, this wanting, attracting, coming together force. Our bodies wouldn't hold together. Our families wouldn't hold together. Just the very nature of life taking form means molecules and atoms and everything have to be attracted to each other, right? It's what we end up calling grasping and neediness, but there's just this basic force in the universe of, of eros, of attraction, which really is just a part of our nature. So there's something quite beautiful in being able to drop under the story and sense, ah, that's just the longing to connect, to live fully, to attract, to be part of. There's a poem that most of you have heard and that seems to come up over and over again because it seem, touches this and says it in a way that is so deep. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees 100 miles repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body 
love what it loves. If we just let it be, trust it. It's not just the longing arrow side to let be. Also in Universes of Green Dragon, it's described how all the energies of conflict and tension and explosion and colliding stars, volcanoes, earthquakes, what we call aversion in the natural world, isn't it? There's room in the universe for that. And so part of our challenge, just like to drop under the story of grasping and sense eros, is to drop under what we've entitled evil in terms of aversion and just sense the nature of that too. It's part of human nature. Carl Jung says that all neurosis or suffering is really just those parts of our psyche that we have not felt fully. The problem is not that we have fear or anger or grasping. It's that we haven't learned to make room in a wise and balanced way to really feel fully to be with what's there. That's why when you come to retreat and and there's all these different stories of what doesn't feel right and it almost doesn't matter the content because the practice keeps being the same. To make room for, to be with, to see clearly just what's there. It can be extended, what Carl Jung said about our own psyches, you know, that our suffering comes from what we don't feel fully, to on a global level, that to the extent that humans have not touched and dealt with our greed and aversion, wars exist. That is the cause of suffering on a global level. So it becomes our practice here this practice of really listening to what's here, to being with the touch. As, as Anna said last night, the willingness to be with life is really a political act. It's personal, it's political, it's spiritual. It's the only possibility for freedom because to the extent that we push it away and that we're unwilling, a whole other world of suffering and violence takes place out of that. I think I mentioned that I was at a retreat recently and the teacher, one of the things he repeated very regularly was, don't stop anything. And it was interesting because at first that kind of that language didn't quite click and then all of a sudden as I was sitting I kept finding how much I was stopping my experience. I was controlling it, altering it, doing things to it. I wasn't just letting experience happen. Don't stop anything. But it's interesting because to not stop things from happening, there has to be a lot of room. There has to be room in our hearts for the life that we are experiencing inside us, for all the fears, for the discomfort, for the judgments. There has to be some room. One way, one way of thinking about making room is really in the practice of forgiving. Forgiving, the word forgiving really means to let be. It's another way of saying it. And some people 
uh, it's a real awakening word, and for others it has other connotations. But just to speak a bit about forgiving, that sometimes it really helps just to forgive what is in a conscious way. I mentioned to some of you, there's a, a teacher that comes to IMS, or mostly teaches at Spirit Rock, but one year, one of the first years I was there at retreat, she described how no matter what came up in her awareness, she forgave it. You know, If it was a pain in her knee, I forgive this pain. If it was a Dharma teacher giving a, too long a talk, I forgive the length of the talk and the teacher and my boredom. You know. Um, whatever it was, I forgive the food. I for she just got in this habit of, of saying that. But as she said it, she was connected with this sense of, it's okay, there's room for this too. What a beautiful mantra, this too, this too, to keep on including our experience. So I tried out that technique, just kind of forgiving everything, and eventually you stop being quite that religious about forgiving everything. But when the big stuff comes along, there's a bit of a habit in your body-mind. One of my clients did an experiment. Actually, this was not a client. This was a, a student in class at uh, Tacoma Park. He gets a lot of psoriasis on his arms and legs. And one year, he had a lot on both arms. So. And he was doing a retreat, I think, at IMS. And he, his experiment was he forgave the psoriasis on one arm, <laughs> the left arm. <laughs> you know, he, he kept feeling that arm and feeling the energy there and really directing this forgiving energy towards that one arm. And it went away on that one arm. <laughs> I don't know what you think about it empirically, but it was an interesting experiment. In a moment of forgiving, there's room. And you know, one of the truths about our experience is they arise and they pass. And what seems to create the suffering is they get stuck. We hold on to them by trying to push them away. So when we just forgive, let be, there's a natural process of letting go. Sometimes it's not as lighthearted or easy a thing, though. As many of you know, especially those of you that have more directly experienced abuse from friends or parents or other people, real abuse, when we've been wounded, it's very difficult to forgive another person. And what seems to be the only real way for healing is not to try so quickly to forgive someone else. I think that's a kind of an idealistic and unworkable approach, but rather first to pay attention to the place in us which is hurting and forgive <coughs> that place, forgive the hurting, forgive that in us which might have um, in some way participated in getting hurt. Just forgiving, forgiving, offering to the wounds within our own self, because as we do that, we create a space of forgiveness, of allowing, that then can include others. It, it's kind of, uh, once there's room, there's room for all, but it really needs to be directed towards our own pain first. Joko Beck writes, our failure to know joy is a direct reflection <coughs> of our inability to forgive. Think of it, the parts of yourself you haven't forgiven, those around you. 
It creates a kind of contraction in the heart that stops us from that open-hearted, flowing feeling of joy. Our inability to forgive stops us from living and feeling fully. (coughs) Rumi writes, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. So we all long to lie down in that field. We really do. We don't want to hold against, close out of our hearts anybody or anything. And yet it's very difficult sometimes to open, to make room. So much of our practice is about that, about in some way relaxing our body, mind, heart, to open and make room, to try it out. Because what we discover when we try is we do have room. It's our nature to be able to hold the experiences that arise within us. I mentioned before, it's not just pain that we are conditioned to push away, but pleasure, and that's an interesting thing. Even though we grasp after pleasure, something I found more and more with myself and others is how we hold back from really letting ourselves enjoy of us got a message when we were young. When we were young, we might have had a natural exuberance that was really enjoying it all. And we got this message to chill out. Do you know what I mean? Keep cool, be more restrained. I think our mothers just couldn't handle it, or our mothers and fathers, all this life. And then we stopped being able to handle it. And that's sad. The sense that we can't contain or allow our own vitality. There's an interesting question that comes up around that, is that how can we let ourselves love, let ourselves enjoy without grasping? How can we allow passion and really be mindful also? I think that's something a lot of people on the path are trying to explore, to let ourselves live more fully but not get caught, not get caught in the grasping that we know creates suffering. Ajahn Chah writes, What is the essence of practice? And then he holds up a cup. He says, it's beautiful, functional, care went into making it. If I can imagine it as already broken, I can still use and appreciate it. Can you sense that freedom in not holding on, but deeply valuing? That's a beautiful possibility, not holding on, but deeply valuing. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about that when he teaches, and I think I told some of you about this, this hug that he, it's kind of a guided hug meditation. That always sounds so Southern California to me, (laughs) guided hug meditation. (laughs) So in this meditation, two people look at each other and look into each other's eyes and see Buddha nature in each other. And then they hug each other, and as they hug each other, there's a reflection, and it's that you're going to die, 
and I'm going to die. And this moment of touching, of being, is so sacred. Just this moment. Very powerful when we recognize it's all passing. We're going to die, and it's happening fast. It's all passing really quickly. A few of us were talking about that today. And in that recognition, there becomes a profound longing to open to it now, to live it fully. I asked several people today why they came to the retreat. And a few people mentioned this, the sense that, you know, it's happening really quick, this life. You know that feeling? It's like, I think I mentioned to Anna uh, yesterday, one woman wrote, as she got older, she started feeling like she was eating breakfast every five minutes. (laughs) It's happening quickly. And the more we realize that it's not forever, we're mortal, the more death becomes, as Don Juan says, an advisor. We really want to value and live fully what's here. It's very painful to sense our habit of pulling away, pushing under, not living it. That's where the real despair comes up. What we begin to realize in practice is that this longing to live fully is getting stronger than our conditioning to pull away from the moment. I think that's kind of what waking up is, is that we're waking up to sense our nature, our nature to be here, to be able to hold it all. And that realization is much bigger than the old habits of pulling away, the old conditions of resist, conditioning to resist. And it's happening slowly. It's not all of a sudden. And again, we talked about that today. But more and more, more and more moments, there's a willingness to be with, as Anna described last night, that's stronger than the old habit of pulling away. So here we are. We make the choice to be here, which is, as we've been saying, a kind of wild choice, isn't it? Because something in us knows that we really want to be awake. That more than the old styles of happiness that we thought we wanted, that we're beginning to realize don't work anyway, we want to live this life. It's going fast, and it's very beautiful. It's scary, it's beautiful, it's mysterious, it's sacred. It's incredible. And here we are, so why not live it? It says, Thich Nhat Hanh says, that it's really about keeping our appointment with life, which is what we're all doing. It's what our intention is to do. So in the Mahayana tradition, they say that the what comes up as we do what we're doing here, the what comes up, the greed, the aversion, this and that, really are the grounds of awakening. It's not like they're distractions and we're waiting for them to go away so then we can sit and have serene, tranquil, peaceful, blissful sittings. No, it's not that. The conditioned stuff keeps happening, but we wake up around it by relating to it with more and more friendliness and peace and care and balance. We let it be more. In the Mahayana tradition, they write, Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. I find that reassuring. (laughs) You know, that all circumstances, anything that arises is a vehicle for awakening. 
think what we begin to find out is that there's room for our experience when we don't buy into this story that there's something wrong with us. Both in psychotherapy and when I see people working through in retreats is a letting go of that story, not believing that one so much. In some deep way, sensing that we're all right. You know, and there's a story I've heard many times about Deepama, who's passed away now, but was a wonderful saint, teacher, Buddhist woman teacher. And there'd be a group of people sitting together at retreat, and she'd look around and she'd go over to people that maybe looked like they were having a hard time and put her hand on their shoulder and kind of whisper, it's okay. Just that. It's okay. So sometimes when I'm going through a rough time, I'll sense this hand on my shoulder, and it works. There's something very powerful about that mantra, it's okay. Or as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross writes, I'm not okay, you're not okay, and it's okay, you know? (laughs) And isn't that what it's about, that there's the not okay, the not beautiful, all the conditioning, that keeps happening, and there's this bigger space that in some deep way I can just kind of not say, it's okay. There are times that we're not able to reconnect with that sense of it's okay, that we get caught in running our stories over and over. And that's when Sangha community can be quite valuable. Just to share with you briefly, I think it was my very first Vipassana retreat I went to. On the second day, there was a talk about suffering. And it was a talk about how universal suffering is, that we all suffer, you know, that we all have this wanting mind, and we all have these fears about life, and we all suffer. And this might sound strange to you, but I felt this enormous wave of relief that it was like this universal thing. Because I had been going around thinking that something was really wrong with me, that I suffered so much. There's something about hearing the Dharma, hearing what's universal, that's very freeing. It's not so personal. We all experience this stuff. Again, that same poem, Wild Geese, one line is, tell me of despair yours, and I will tell you mine. It's so beautiful when people can sit down and share what's raw, what's vulnerable. And it's not just for the sake of exposing. There's something that happens that's bigger than the personal stories. When there's a sense that here we are, it's not so much my thing. There's more freedom, there's a loosening around it. This is what's so powerful about 12-step groups. Many of you probably know this, that There's a sense when we begin to tell our stories, and not in the sense of rerunning them in a reactive way, blaming and so on, but simply tell our stories into a larger container, that what happens is there's a sense of freedom around it. At Maneaters Anonymous, this is Gary Larson, of course. (laughs) My name's Elmo. Well, it all started rather innocently, killing socially, you know. A game warden here, a tourist there, impressing the other guys, you know. But then I just couldn't stop. Sometimes I'd even stash an extra one in the crotch of a tree. (laughs) 
quite seriously, our addictions embarrass us. There's a lot of shame we have around our neediness and our fear and the way that we try to take care of ourselves. So there's a very beautiful and powerful thing when in community we can take what feels so personal and so deficient and put it out there. It's a, in a way, it's a forgiving, it's a letting go. Many native cultures do this. Michael Mead writes a beautiful story about a ritual about it around a tooth, and I've mentioned it to a lot of you, but it's, it's this ritual where people tell their stories, their shame, their pain, and, and they dance and sing around it, and there's just this whole energy of a whole community embracing what's painful, so it doesn't have to be held onto and identified so much with. Telling our stories. So our challenge is not to rerun our stories of what's wrong in our own minds and in a reactive way, but rather to bring the light of mindfulness, of an open heart to hold them, so they can be transformed, so they can be grounds for awakening. And we can do this within our own practice as we sit, and we can do this as a sangha with each other. It's not to get rid of grasping and aversion. It's not to get rid of what we call the shadow, but to relate to this in a wakeful way. One of the things we find is as we sit and really pay attention is that experiences will come up and there's kind of a flinching, a pushing away. This is Emmanuel. Walk with your heaviness saying yes. Yes to the sadness. Yes to whispered longing. Yes to the fear. Love means setting aside fences, walls, unlocking doors and saying yes. One can be in paradise by simply saying yes to this moment. Sometimes the saying yes is really to what's painful, to really saying yes to what's difficult, to being able to really look at it and sense it. And when we do, compassion arises. See, this is the beauty of it. It's kind of the promise of it, that there's a real freedom and a heart-opening quality to saying yes to our experience. Longfellow writes, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we really look at another's suffering, at our own suffering, In that moment of seeing suffering, we're no longer caught in reactivity. Our hearts naturally open. Compassion naturally arises. This is a story I just found in DC. They're doing different kind of experiential work with children in trying out different modalities to explore children's feelings for children. And in one, there was um, a story that was first read. It's a South African myth, and there's this monster called Kwadoma Doma. And in this story, the monster eats all of the village people who finally escape by cutting their way out of his belly. But this is what happened with the kids when they started creatively working with this myth. 
with our kids, we had each of the monster's organs represent a feeling. There was anger in his stomach and confusion in his lungs. The thoughts in the monster's head then engaged in a dialogue with his feelings. However, the children's escape strategy differed significantly from the original version of the myth. Once inside his heart, they sang a lullaby to soothe the monster. When he began to cry, the children slid out on his tears. There's a real sense of freedom when our hearts open, but sometimes it's because we have said yes, we've been willing to be with the pain, with what's difficult. But there are times that it feels like we're too small. As I mentioned, sometimes we need to share our stories with others. Sometimes we need to call on what seems to be bigger. You can do this in your heart. That's part of what taking refuge is about, that we're not always feeling open and connected and big. So we take refuge in that which is true. We take refuge in the Buddha, in our Buddha nature, which is awake and infinitely boundlessly compassionate. And if we have kind of an image or a sense of that Buddha nature, even if in that moment we're not feeling that way, just by taking refuge in that, having that intention to take refuge, we reconnect with what's true, which is our own Buddha nature. I was so moved at one retreat that I was, I think it was last New Year's retreat I was teaching, and one woman came in and she said, you know, I can't handle how painful this is, but what I've been doing for the last few days is just saying this prayer, may I rest in the heart of the Buddha. And I could see, even as she said that, that she relaxed, that there was a container a loving container for her pain. Here you go. So our practice, what we call embracing the shadow, is really, hey hon, you gotta go. Is <laughs> <laughs> really about opening to just what's here. I'd like to read you a poem that I heard at a New Year's retreat up at IMS about four years ago that has to do with paying attention to what's difficult. It's called A Prayer for Children. We pray for children who sneak popsicles before supper, who erase holes in math workbooks, who throw tantrums in the grocery store and pick at their food, who like ghost stories, who can never find their shoes. And we pray for those who stare at photographers from behind barbed wire, who can't bound down the street in a new pair of sneakers, who are born in places we wouldn't be caught dead, who never go to the circus, who live in an X-rated world. We pray for children who sleep with the dog and bury the goldfish, who bring us sticky kisses and fistfuls of dandelions, who get visits from the tooth fairy, who hug us in a hurry and forget their lunch money. And we pray for those who never get dessert, who have no safe blanket to drag behind them, who watch their parents watch them die, who can't find any bread to steal, who don't have any rooms to clean up, whose pictures aren't on anybody's dresser, whose monsters are real. We pray for children 
who spent all their allowance before Tuesday, who shove dirty clothes under the bed and never rinse out the tub, who don't like to be kissed in front of the carpool, who squirm in church or temple and scream in the phone, whose tears we sometimes laugh at and whose smiles make us cry. And we pray for those whose nightmares come in the daytime, who will eat anything, who have never seen a dentist, who aren't spoiled by anybody, who go to bed hungry and cry themselves to sleep, who live and move but have no being. We pray for children who want to be carried and for those who must, for those we never give up on and for those who don't get a second chance, for those we smother and for those who will grab the hand of anybody kind enough to offer it. So this is all of us, the joys and sorrows of all of us, and a practice that's just simply that willingness to be with life, to really be with it. It's as Gandhi said, that until we learn to love the most difficult parts of ourselves, we can't really be free to love in this world. So I'll end here. Let's just take a few moments to sit quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.